Hi, folks. This bonus episode is a quick glance at the Agricultural Policy Framework, or the APF, and the APF policy recommendations of Farmers for Climate Solutions. Agriculture policy is something that goes a bit over my head. So we brought John Kalk, who's an agriculture producer in Iron Springs, Alberta. We brought him on the podcast to explain what the APF is and how it impacts Canadian agriculture producers. Now, what I can tell you is it's up for review right now. In fact, provincial, territorial, and federal ministers are meeting on July 20th to hammer out the details of the next APF. The next APF will come into effect in 2023 and run until 2028. So what that means is, if you've been waiting for an opportunity to have an impact or make your voice heard on Canadian agriculture policy, now is like your once in every five years chance. Now, there's a report called Rooted in Climate Action. In that report, you can find Farmers for Climate Solutions policy recommendations for the APF. I think for a lot of you, you found them interesting. My conversation with John Kalk was recorded at the beginning of July of 2022. Enjoy. Then, yeah, we'll just uh, kick it off nice and easy. If you could just go over where you live, where your farm or ranch, and what you got going on at your place. We live in what we call the Palliser Triangle. Um, it's uh, an area that John Palliser went through in the 1850s and said, this land is, uh, is good for buffalo and that's it. Since that time, of course, federal governments wanted to uh, populate the prairies and keep the Americans from crossing the 49th. So there was all kinds of things that went on there. But one of the biggest things was a recognition that the water towers in the mountains had a lot of water storage and that water was running east or south. And if it could be stored and used, you could actually change uh, what was going on because we've got pretty good climate here, uh, fairly good growing season, but we don't have water. So we, uh, we work in an irrigation district. Our average water we get is, including snow, is about 11 to 12 inches. So not enough to really grow crops. Um, works okay for prairie to some extent. But uh, that's where we live and work. And most of what we do is in the uh, irrigation. So we run about 3,000 acres of irrigation and, and about another 1,000 of dry land. Every once in a while, you get a great dry land crop, and quite often you don't. Uh, but the irrigation tends to be fairly consistent. So it's, it's a dry climate. It's um, We have a fair amount of wind. So wind erosion is often an issue for us. But the valuable part is that we can grow everything from sugar beets to dry beans to carrots, potatoes, corn silage. And, and so our variety of crops down here are fairly significant compared to other parts of the prairies. More uh, closer to... Uh, Portage of the Prairie and, and uh, southern Manitoba than other parts of the high prairies. The land base we work on tends to be fairly light soils, not a lot of topsoil, and fairly low organic matter. So that's always something that we keep an eye on. Now, the other side of that is we farm right next to the largest concentration of livestock in Canada. Mm. So whenever you can put a combination together working with, uh, with the neighbors who have manure because uh, they're trucking in forage and grains to, to use for the cattle. So we're able to benefit from that. And we've actually raised our organic matter in a number of our um, soils by working with feedlot operators that, that need to 
balance their nutrient requirements on their land and maintain sustainability. So I farm with one full-time son, one almost full-time daughter, and uh, a part-time daughter and a part-time son. Uh, so we, uh, they're in transition to taking some of that over. This was a farm that my grandfather started in the 50s. Uh, dad took it over. My brother and I took that over. And of course, over time, he continued to expand. You know, economics um, are ruthless that way. <laughs> Just, you can't, can't send, send kids to college and, uh, and meet your commitments on, a, on two quarters of land anymore. That just doesn't work. So they're quite involved and pushing, you know, around some sustainability issues. The interesting thing is, is over the last 70 years, our efficiency on water use, on fertilizer use, on uh, crop productivity has, has been really an impressive story. And we talk about the impressive technology story, but the farm technology story is truly impressive. Like uh, you just take a hard look and I always use the example of my grandfather could grow 50 bushels of barley on about 24 inches of water on irrigation. Today, I'm probably running on average under 12 inches of water and we're hitting 120, 130 bushels. So that's a pretty nice factor. We always made a commitment not only to our business, our family, our community, but also to our ag community. So we're in the business of agriculture. So when we were in, in poultry, um, Chicken Farmers of Canada uh, 20 years ago, um, been involved in, in the cattle industry uh, on some of the boards, and then a number of more provincial policy-related boards. So um, Water for Life, which was developed years ago, the land use strategy. And currently I am involved with RDAR, which is results-directed agricultural research. So we're very focused on a producer-directed board that works with, with the technical people to assess different types of innovation and try and seed that. Uh, some of it's through our universities, some of it's through private sector. The whole uh, sustainability thing has been important to me, but you can't talk about sustainability without metrics, mm. without measuring. So I chair Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute, which monitors about almost 700 sites across Alberta on a grid. And we look at everything from uh, soil mites to uh, the megafauna, plants, uh, fungi, fungi, and uh, everything else, so that we actually have a record of what's out there, but then we can go back and see what's changing. So for me, good data has always been important on the farm, but also in these broader areas when we're, we're managing ecosystems. And of course, I play a little bit at, uh, at home with my local community, whether it's church or, uh, or just the local community. So tend to stay busy. Fortunately, being able to do a lot of things that I enjoy doing. Yeah, no, I'm a busy guy. And yet you still found time to go to the lake last week. That's pretty amazing, actually. <laughs> you, you've got to keep balance in your life, <laughs> Eric. <laughs> I'll try to remind myself of that. Didn't always do that when I was younger, so yeah, <laughs> we try and try and do that more often. So I'm happy to hear it. What the heck is an agricultural policy framework? Canada has this uh, lovely thing of uh, dual jurisdictions. Uh, so 
And agriculture is one of those dual jurisdictions. We have uh, our provincial governments who have a role in agriculture, and we have the federal government. And, and they have slightly different roles, but they also have overlaps. So federally, the feds would like to see some consistent support and uh, opportunity across the country. Uh, the provinces, of course, would be interested in how it plays out for them. So over time, then this is, I think we're probably into the third or fourth APF. I uh, remember working with the first one back with Lyle Van Cleef. So that's probably before you were born, but uh, it's it's been a while. So the idea is that every five years, they try and put together a package to say, what are the priorities over the next five years? What are the challenges? What are the things that we need to be doing some work on? And what's not working? So it, it is a process that has a lot of politics involved. So there's always uh, squabbles between the uh, junior partners and the senior partners, uh, partner. It's going to be a balance of what works well for agriculture and what's politically achievable. The APF usually takes a couple, two, three years to to get into place. And, uh, you know, it starts with using some data and some assessments and some uh, consultations that are happening. And so this APF, um, we're hoping to see put in place next year. What they started with was an agreed set of priorities. And what we would notice if you're kind of just standing from the outside and looking in, is that innovation continues to be an important thing. Sustainability is going up higher on the agenda. Diversity is something that certainly the federal government is pushing, and there's some recognition. And diversity ranges from immigrant farmers, uh, like some of the Syrians that have come into Canada. They're agriculturalists. I mean, you know, is, is there opportunities for them to play? And also Aboriginal communities are, are seeing agriculture, uh, at least in, in the prairies in some areas, as, as an important component. And uh, the whole gender thing. Um, farming's had a tendency to have a bit of a, a macho thing going on mm. over the years. And uh, the reality is that uh, ownership is getting closer to split 50-50, or certainly in some areas of, of North America, between the genders. But more importantly is... Uh, Many of the service uh, people are are now uh, females. They seem to be able to do a better job than than some of the other people they used to hire. And ownership and, and management is changing. So just a recognition that farming is not all 63-year-old white guys like me. Mm. There's a whole lot of different people out there. And so that was one of the recognitions in the uh, in the wealth statement. It recognizes that to truly succeed and thrive, we need to look a little broader than we looked before. The other piece that you'll see is uh, a real focus on climate change or attempts to reduce the impact of agriculture on um, whether it's nitrous oxide or it's carbon dioxide or methane. Right, well, you mentioned the Guelph statement a little bit earlier, so we might as well jump to that. Uh, just kind of generally or broadly, like what is the Guelph Statement and how does it relate to the APF? The Guelph Statement is when you get all the, the predators in the room together and uh, say, what can we agree on? And, and usually uh, <laughs> they can agree on a few things. And uh, 
So they, they've got a set of kind of priorities. So climate change, environmental protection, and uh, you know there was there was general support there. The science and research and innovation, you're seeing that to different extents in different provinces, that priority, but it's definitely something there. And, and I guess the shift there is 100 years ago, this was driven by Agriculture Canada and, and Alberta Ag. So they were the ones investing in it and executing. So the scientists that we would re- refer to often work there. There's been more and more of that moving into the private sector over time. Mm. There's two sides to this. One is governments are less paternalistic when it comes to farmers. It used to be they they had to tell us how to do everything. Uh, Now they're starting to back off on that because farmers tend to be fairly innovative as long as you put the incentives in place. And there's also a sense that private sector can put the dollars into it and get a return on their investment. Uh, Building sector capacity on agri-food and agri-products. Canada... You know, we've always heard the story that Canada is a hewer of wood and a drawer of water. And in particular, the prairies have often felt that. We are laggards when it comes to further processing. We, uh, Ontario and Quebec have some, Southern BC has some, but overall, we tend to export a lot of commodities. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity to keep some of the jobs here at home reduce transportation costs and uh, and impacts are there. So, and, and, and that's a slow process. I, I mean, you go to parts of Europe, they do a hell of a job of, of processing right there. And then, um, you know, resilience. So how do we anticipate risks? Hotter hots, colder colds, um, wetter wets. So part of that we can anticipate by looking at climate data and looking at issues. Insects and pathogens are, are an issue that's you know that we have to maintain or keep an eye on. Those those are the big principles this year. They're not really mix and messing with agri stability or agri recovery. That's where the big dollars tend to be, and uh, there just obviously wasn't an appetite to mess with that right now. Even though there's some changes that will be needed, and and I'll just use an example there. Mm. When I want to look at cover crops, for instance, or multi-cropping, there's risks to me to do that. But there may be policy things in place for insurance that actually stop me from doing it because I'm on my own. There, I can't, I can't insure that. The organic people have seen that over time. That there's, there's been times that the opportunities that they tried to put together are not adequately addressed by the risk management suite of of products that are out there. As we're pushing areas of resilience, as we're seeing more interest in cover crops, various different other sustainability initiatives, the policies do have to change and things like crop insurance and uh, risk management products will have to shift as well. But I just it looked to me like there was just not an appetite for it this time around. There was not enough um, certainty around it. And there was a difference between what would work for Ontario and Quebec and the, and the Maritimes as to the prairies. When you can't um, resolve it, you pass on it and uh, kick the cat down the road for a while. But is there anything about the 
maybe the Guelph statement in particular that you feel like, yeah, they missed something or they could improve upon something or something that's just not there that should be there? One of the issues that needs to get addressed over time is around research, innovation, and the regulatory space. The um, CFIA, PMRA, uh, which are federal um, organizations, tend to respond to the minister, which is fine. That's at least we know where the authority is. People that work for them are probably highly credible scientists and researchers. But if you're going to be a good researcher, a great scientist, you're probably not a generalist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's like the blind man walking around the elephant, you know, an elephant's like a rope because I'm holding on to the tail, but it could be a vacuum cleaner if I'm on the front end of it. The problem with having people that work very well in silos and dig deep setting policy is that the impacts on the farm and on the marketplace are not necessarily always properly addressed. I'm glad to see the recognition in the Guelph statement around around new technologies, um, using science, research, and innovation, and collecting data, by the way, which is really important uh, part of the Guelph statement. I'm glad to see that. What I don't see is that helpful oversight or governance that puts the various different pieces together and recognizes that how does this work on the actual farm? How does it work in the international marketplace? I would argue that you must use the experts for advice, just like you use a lawyer. But at the end of the day, don't let the lawyer set policy. You're still the client. You still have to decide. I would love to see the ministers get more serious about who the client is of PFRA or PMRA and CFIA and, um, you know, the the whole uh, Health Canada side of things. They need to be taking a more serious look at the governance of those organizations that we still do the right thing when it comes to food safety. We still do the right thing when it get the right advice when it comes to water protection. We still do the right thing on, on carbon sequestration, but we do it with a very clear-eyed look at the impact on the marketplace and on the agricultural production systems. Mm. So, so if I see a gap in this thing, that's the gap that we have to continue to work at. Agriculture is an ecosystem. Moving one piece impacts other pieces. And Europe has found out the hard way that when you get rid of neonicotinoids, you might help the bee population, but you're ruining productivity. So how do you get the balance there? You can't ask a scientist to give you that balance. You must talk to the people doing the business and looking at it. That's a piece that I miss in this one. For the rest of it, yeah, there is one other piece. The Americans, Europeans tend to have clear, much clearer programs that are predictable and bankable. When farmers are taking a risk on putting, uh, let's go, let's say moving towards strip tillage, which is something I use on my farm. If the risk is totally on their backs, or if they don't know whether they can get support to make that change, they tend to stay away from doing it. I I mean, we've got enough risks to deal with on on climate and markets. 
um, that changing practices that we're not certain of yet, that's a risk we can't take. So if I'm in the States, I can figure out how the insurance program is going to work for me if I'm deciding between uh, soybeans or corn or you know various different things in Europe as well. In Canada, they just don't trust farmers enough or they want to maintain control of how much dollars are going out. So it's not bankable, not predictable. The kind of money that we've had to spend on accountants to work with some of the risk management programs are, yeah, it's, it's outrageous. And if there's a shift that has to happen, I think getting transparent, bankable business risk management programs in place, uh, that's, that's maybe going to be the challenge for the next uh, APF. Um, but that one's just critical. I, um, if you don't know what the speed limit is and the cop gets to decide whether you should be going 60 or 90, that makes everybody pretty darn cautious. So that's the, that's the issue there. So I, I think that's something that has to happen better. Public trust, I think that's always going to be something there. Mental health and worker health and safety. Every good farmer better be working hard on that stuff. And then maybe some encouragement there is not a bad thing. So overall, Wealth Statement's got some good stuff. It's got some misses and it's got some work to do in the future. So let's jump down to the BMPs, uh, just to, I guess, bring this massive framework more down to earth. So I don't know, what are some of the BMPs you'd like to see the Guelph Statement, or sorry, the APF support? And you don't have to list every single one. You can give me your top five or top three or something like that. Probably the, the biggest quick focus is going to be on the four R's of a nutrient in the uh, cropping sector. So, you know, the right amount, the right timing, the right placement, getting the use of fertilizers to the plant when the plant needs it in a form that the plant can use it. I think 40, 50 years ago, we would say that half the nitrogen we put on wasn't getting to the plant. So if we could move that up to 90% over time, you have less external impacts. Um, so, so that piece of it, and, and that requires measuring what's in your soil, knowing more about what the plant needs and when it needs it, and figuring out ways of delivering that product to the plant in a cost-effective way. The whole 4R thing, I think, has got climate change benefits. It can reduce our costs. but Sometimes you have to spend more to save something. And, and there's something called uh, ESN fertilizer, which is kind of a, got a coating on it. So it releases slowly over time, but it's 30% more. You're going to have to prove that to me that I should be spending 30% more on my fertilizer and still coming ahead. Like, you know, if it's a win, I'll adopt it. But if it's not a win or it's uncertain, I think we need a, you know, we need some incentives to put that in place. So that's a big one. Things like uh, acidification of lagoons to reduce uh, methane emissions. Those are fairly low cost, somewhat risky, but there's something that with incentives will become common practice over time. So you, you start with some incentives, get it to become part of the business and move forward. On my farm, cover cropping is something that's a bit tougher on the prairies. It's got 
higher risk, probably two years out of five, you may not get the cover crop to take. So, you know, you're, you're spending almost 40% more than you should on, on cover cropping and not getting the benefits. So there's probably going to have to be some incentives around that. Intercropping, relay cropping, some of those things have got potential. They need a bit more work. Uh, wetland protection, a bit more expensive, but probably a better long-term uh, benefit for society overall. There's, uh, you know, on our operation, I one of the things I've always dreamed of is I've got a bunch of areas that are difficult to farm and I'm paying taxes on them. I, uh, I pay the bank for them. But if there was a focused incentive to say pollinator strips, um, habitat areas, it would be a bit of, a bit of fun. But, but, you know, if I can get a crop three years out of five off of that, I'm further ahead than if I turn it into a uh, biodiversity spot. So that's something that if uh, society values, and I think they do, if our environment values, I think it does. I think there's probably some opportunities to, to put some, some stuff there. I'd, I'd love to get some of the native species in some of these uh, lowland areas. We already have wildlife interaction, but you know, if you can put a place for the pollinators or um, for the predators, um, I think that's something that we'd like, I'd like to see personally uh, move forward. So there's been a number of uh, BMPs um, suggested by a, a paper that Farmers for Climate Solutions have put out. Most of them are proven technologies with some costing around them and some projected impacts that would seriously contribute to a either more sequestration of carbon or a reduction in emissions. And, uh, and there's probably some others. You know, uh, some of the precision farming stuff, I, I think uh, farmers are adapting pretty quickly, but some of it is still a risk, uh, especially, you know, if you're, if you're growing corn and soybeans in Iowa, precision farming uh, is got a pretty good return on investment. If you're doing wheat and canola in central Saskatchewan, eh, maybe not as much. You know, the value proposition might not be there for the producer. Doesn't mean that there's not a value proposition there. It means that it takes a bit more show me at this point for adaptation to occur. I thought I could read out the BMP recommendations that are in that Rooted in Climate Action Report, just in case you're curious about what they are, and maybe you don't have time to read it because you're cutting hay right now. So there's 19 BMPs in the report, and those 19 BMPs fall into five different categories. Some of the BMPs we've covered on this podcast before. Others are BMPs that I'm sure we'll cover in the future. So I'll just read them out verbatim here. So in the nitrogen management category, we have quantitative determination of right rate, precision nitrogen management, enhanced efficiency nitrogen fertilizer, elimination of fall nitrogen application for our management of manure, improved crediting of organic N sources. And then under the manure storage and handling category, it's synthetic permeable floating covers, acidification of liquid manure, under livestock management, increased legumes and pasture, rotational grazing, and extended grazing period. Under soil management, we have cover cropping and intercropping. Under wetland and tree management, we've got a bunch of BMPs. We've got avoided conversion of wetlands, wetland restoration alley cropping, silvopasture, planting riparian trees, 
and avoided conversion of shelter belts. If you haven't heard of Farmers for Climate Solutions before, it's a national coalition pushing for policy and programs to support agriculture producers who want to put farm solutions that are also climate solutions into action. It's a coalition that Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is pretty proud to be a part of. I do feel like a bit of a jerk asking it, I suppose, but uh, why do agriculture producers need an APF that supports them in either transitioning or adopting agricultural climate solutions? Why can't producers just go out and do it by themselves without a supportive APF? I think it depends on what you would like agriculture to look like. Mm. Because, you know what, if there was no supports out there, and there's areas of the world where there is no supports, they will produce food. Okay, They're going to do something with their land to produce food um, because people need food. But for me to make a living over 20 or, say, a 50-year career, I can probably suck money out of the bank or the soil bank or the health bank that I can run down the assets that have been built up either by you know the prairies that were there or, or whatever. If you're looking long-term, I think that it's important that society works with producers to build sustainability, reduce carbon or reduce um, climate change impacts things around diversity, you know, um, Aboriginal communities or minority communities that are involved in agriculture. I think that if those things are important to society, they've got to put a couple of shekels on the table to make that happen. If not, we will produce food, but it would probably be less sustainable because our lifespans are 70, 80 years and nature works in a lot bigger cycles than that. I, it's a legitimate question, and I think it goes to values. If there are things we value, for instance, pronghorns on the um, southern Alberta prairie, if society says that's still important to us, and I would like you, Mr. Producer, to make sure that we keep having that, I'm sorry, you're going to have to pay the bill. End of the day. Somebody's going to pay the bill. It's either me or you. So while I have a tendency to be someone who says, hey, I think we should try and do as much of this on our own. We should try and stand on our own. When I'm asked to do something for nothing and still feed my kids or my grandkids or whatever my priorities happen to be, I think we're going to have to keep playing in this zone. I think there is an important component there that we ask for. No different than if some people were left to their own, they would say that certain minorities are not welcome in their bakery. And as a society, we say, ah, guess what? That's not one of our values. Mm. And even though you may think that that's something that's important to you as a baker, society prioritizes that differently. And we're going to put something in place that makes that not acceptable. I, I look at the ag sector in some ways as well. We say there are things that we value as people, as a society. And we're asking individual businesses, farmers, to uphold those values. So I think you have to play together there. I think that's what builds a, a, a positive society. So, I mean, it's a bit philosophical, but I, I think there is rationale 
for doing this and doing it right. All right, you're on the right podcast when it comes to philosophical stuff. We definitely go down this rabbit hole quite often, so it works for us. Um, and, and, hey. <laughs> There, there was a time producers were just expected to produce food, fiber, fuels, and medicine. We're, at, we're asking for that and a heck of a lot more these days. Now we want ecosystem goods and services. We want what like some people call nutrient-dense food. And if you look at the wealth statement and just what society's demanding these days, we also want producers to help address climate change. I know you're not the first producer I've hit with this question, but is this all fair to producers? I, I think we all choose our careers over time and are where we want to impact the world. If I, as a producer, am choosing to play in that zone, I think I have a, you know, it's not only society's demands on us, but I think I have a responsibility back to society, to future generations, to my neighbors. I mean, it's probably not fun being a, a professor at a university sometimes. It's probably not uh, great being a bus driver. So there's times that you say, you know, I find this irritating or obnoxious or costly, but it's where I choose to play. And I, I think that I enjoy being able to produce good, healthy food for my neighbors and for people around the world. And it comes with some good stuff and some bad stuff. Fair? I mean, uh, what the hell is fair? You know, <laughs> it's uh, fair to my two-year-old grandson, you know, is, is uh, <laughs> he's going to lose his stuff over, over not getting a grape. And because his sister got a grape. It's a bit arbitrary, but but I think bigger picture, it's part of the package. Let's try and do it right. Let's try and build a, a you know a better place for, for our neighbors and our kids and our grandkids. That takes some, it's going to have some challenges. Where do you want to see agriculture to go in the future? And I, you can answer this question any way you want. You could say like during the next five years of the APF or by the time you retire, you can look at just Alberta, you can look at Canada, the world. Or where would you like to see things going in the next few years or decades? Making sustainability, soil health real, okay? Because there's a lot of talk about regenerative agriculture and, and soil health. And a lot of that's words. It's not measurable. It's not always replicatable. Sometimes the amount of effort that you're putting in to get that is, is way too much. So. If we take a long enough term, we have to be sustainable. We don't need the prairies to turn into the Sahara Desert. And that might be a myth. I don't know. But <laughs> you know, we don't need to ruin a productive area. We need to kind of keep building it up. And, and so getting that right, I think, is important. I think a lot of those pieces are in place, whether it's, it's going to be solar-powered robotic equipment that's much smaller than today. I see that in my world. I, I'm not sure how many more 600 horsepower tractors I'm going to buy. Mm. You know, I think a diesel tractor, I, I think that will change. I'm not sure my kids will necessarily ever buy one of those. I, I think there's, you know, small and smart is, is something that's we're going to see more of. If you do your own garden, you know, you got to get right down in the dirt and be in that square inch where, where your pea or your carrot is growing to do it well. You won't necessarily do it efficiently. And, and there, I think that's where technology is going to give us some real opportunities, measuring what we're doing, using the ecosystem to deal with some of the bugs and pathogens that are out there. So a better understanding of that. The other piece is 
animal agriculture and crop agriculture have to be brought back together, not necessarily on the same piece of land. In some cases, that will be what happens, but they do have to be brought back together. That nutrient cycling that is part of nature, you see it in a forest, you see it in the grassland. We have to think about and move towards doing that better. You know, if we want to turn out high high quality protein with the proper amino acids and whatnot, those four-legged bioreactors can turn a whole bunch of fiber into something that'll make your kids smart. And and so we need to, to understand that, but we've scale has driven us into our own silos and we have to somehow figure out how to make those silos, the walls have to come down a little bit on it. And so integrating animal agriculture and uh, which, which, you know, may end up at the insect side of things too, who knows? I mean, I, 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 you know, it's, it's another protein source, right? I think that putting them back together, you know, it, there's a tendency, you know, meat's bad and impossible burger is good. Well, yeah. Maybe, and and maybe not. Maybe some of the stuff they do to my peas aren't all that good for you at the end of the day because those are pretty highly processed products. doesn't make it bad at this point. I I think that we can still learn more about it. But I I think that you will never have a sustainable egg system without a good integration of animal livestock with cropping. The other thing is, I think we have to be become more and more transparent about what we do, why we do it, how we do it. That doesn't mean this big uh, branding exercise where we try and convince the soccer moms that we're doing a good job. I mean, in a sense, they don't care. When they care is when they hear someone says, oh, beans have got pesticide residue in them. Well, we better be ready to prove what we know and what we do so that they can be assured that the beans that we're selling them are what they, you know, what they can feed their kids safely. So I think transparency is going to become more important. There's sensors that are getting cheaper and cheaper. There's data that can be collected and used. I I think agriculture hasn't understood the impacts of that yet. And I think we have to be deliberate about that. And I think it's an advantage for us. A hundred years ago, the uh, the neighbor milked uh, milked the cow and delivered the milk to my uh, my great grandmother. And if he didn't do a good job or she got sick, she wouldn't deal with him anymore. But right now, that milk is coming from New Zealand or from the Fraser Valley. So I don't know how to trust that. I, I have no way of that of trusting that. So that means that the system has to build in transparency and trust and willing to prove it and stand behind it. And I think there's a lot of progress happening on that, but I don't think we've understood the impacts of that at this point yet. I think there's going to be some amazing technology around CRISPR and and, uh, and GMO stuff that's got potential as well as risks. We have to be cautious in those areas, but we also have to be open to what what can happen. I mean, uh, I look at corn productivity over the last uh, century and i mean wow you know mm-hmm. um, the starch that is necessary for humans as well as some of the animals uh, i mean the productivity there is just amazing 
And what we're doing is, you know, we're taking sunshine, we're taking water, we're taking nice, decent weather, and we're turning it into something that's valued by the world. And let's let's keep doing that. It's fun. Just want to take this opportunity to do a shout out to all those farmers and ranchers in Alberta, in the prairies, and across Canada. All those farmers and ranchers who are and who have been implementing agricultural climate solutions on their land, despite the lack of policy and program support from governments. You folks, you trailblazers, you'll forever be my heroes. You just went out there, took the risk, and got it done. You fenced off riparian areas, even though maybe you could have drained it and brought it under production. You threw up solar arrays on your barns, even though the cost share programs were never that great. You experimented with cover crops and humbly accepted. You'll probably be referred to as a village idiot in the coffee shop for the next couple of years. You moved cows and polywire on a daily basis even though it probably would have been a little less time-consuming just to pop open a gate, let them out into a pasture, and maybe go move the herd in a month or so. I'm really not too sure where we'd be right now if it wasn't for producers like you. So I just want to say a big thank you to you for being the inspiration for the rest of us. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based initiative empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars, and the Regenerative Agriculture Lab. We produce a farmer's blog. We work with rural communities to develop their own renewable energy projects. And of course, we do this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots of Climate Solutions team is Marie Galanka, Cheyenne Younger, and Kristen Mountain. The podcast is funded by a variety of Alberta-based funders. My parts of the podcast were recorded in Calgary. So that means they were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the climate is good for the farm.